You're listening to Sore Sessions with Dr. Trish and Jeff. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Sore Sessions. Dr. Trish, everybody's favorite doctor, is here. And Jeff Todd, our favorite PA. At least the best one in this room. The greatest one in this room. We have a special guest with us today, and I'm excited about this topic because this is a topic that we deal with on a daily basis. This is a question that or a conversation we have to have with patients on a daily basis is about physical therapy. And we see a lot of patients in the clinic that have either had physical therapy, um, need physical therapy, need physical therapy. Um, and there's a lot of things that go into that because we have patients that some patients that have tried physical therapy have had not so good results with physical therapy. And there's a lot of factors that play into that. Sometimes it's the type of therapy you had. Sometimes it's the therapist. The th- exactly. The therapist. I think a lot of it boils down to the therapist because I think it's such a, par- a personal relationship between a, a patient and a therapist. Not that they're good, bad, or indifferent, but I think like anything, any care provider, you have to have a relationship with. And if you don't have a good relationship with them, then sometimes you don't get everything out of it that you need. And um, there's a lot to go into that. I can go on a four-hour rant about the economics of physical therapy and why it's hard sometimes for a physical therapist to spend all the time that they need to do and everything. But what we're going to talk about today is an exciting topic because it is what can you do in physical therapy besides crunches and leg lifts to try to help your pain? Well, that's not really physical therapy. That's exercise. Well, that can be a component of your therapy, but that's my point. That's exactly my point is that sometimes when we talk to patients and say, hey, I think you really need physical therapy to help with your flexibility or to help with your core. One of the things that we hear quite frequently is, well, I've been to physical therapy and it didn't work. Well, sometimes there's a lot of things that beyond what you already know in physical therapy that can help. There's different treatments. Sometimes even the stuff that you think you know can be retaught to you in a way that maybe it's more um, effective. I agree. I think the expectation for patients needs to be set there. I, it bothers me that patients believe once they've been through a course of physical therapy, it stops when they leave that supervised situa- situation. But physical therapy goes on well past the visits with the physical therapist. So if it doesn't work, it may not have been that two weeks or three weeks they spent under the supervision of a trained physical therapist. It may be their their expectation was that was a end to their symptom and they were finished and that what they learned was not to continue. Exactamundo. So I guess this wraps up our sore <laughs> session. And we're good. <laughs> no, we have with us today a physical therapist from Cora Physical Therapy and her name is Miss Allison McCarthy. Welcome, Allison. Thanks, guys. One of the things that you and I talked about when we talked about having you on was, let's talk about some of the 
alternative treatments or the new stuff that's going on in physical therapy, different things that that you might have, weapons that you might have in your belt, so to speak, to help people with their pain, whether it's back pain, neck pain, knee pain. Take a couple steps back. What does it take to become a physical therapist? Back in the day, you could graduate from college, go to physical therapy school and be done in two years, four years. And now it's much more intensive than that. What was Mm -hmm. your experience, Allison? Yes. So I graduated in 2008 with my master's degree. And now the kids are coming out of school with their doctorates. And it's about another year of school on top of what I did. So it's five and a half years to get your master's or six and a half, maybe seven to get your doctorate. And then do you take a special test? And then you take your board exam. Is that all written or written in oral examination? It is all computer questions, five hours worth of computer testing. And do you have to go back and get recertified periodically? No, you just uh, do your continuing education units, which is 30 units every two years. So are you licensed by the state or do you have a national license so you can practice in any state or is it both? You have to get recertified or go through some process to get to be able to treat in other states. And it's, it's different for each state. Now, in the state of Missouri, you have to have a physician referral to go to a phys- physical therapist. Mm-hmm. Is that the case in all states? No. We are one of the few left that the patients don't have direct access to us. They have to go through the doctor to get a prescription, and then they can come to therapy. Can physical therapists receive prescriptions from physicians that have no end? So the duration is not specified. Absolutely. And you can treat the patient... Forever. Yes. The insurance might not pay for it. Right. Insurance is going to be the the stopping factor. Um, But a lot of primary care physicians, right, evaluate and treat and don't put any frequency or duration because maybe they don't know how long it'll take or how frequent a patient should come to get a good result. So they really leave it up to us. But other doctors know exactly what they want, and they write three times a week for six weeks, and then we write the plan of care for such. And then if at that point we feel like the patient could use more or if they are doing great, then we can discharge them or continue based on what we feel is appropriate. So let's use an imaginary patient for our conversation today. Let's say we're talking about... Can we call them Jeff? Sure. You're the boss, whatever (laughs) you want to call him. Our imaginary friend Jeff. I was going to use the name Cletus. Cletus. You want to use Jeff, that's fine. Cletus is good. Our imaginary patient Jeff has neck and back pain. Walk us through, we're going to get to these kind of new advanced techniques, but in in an average neck and back patient that's never had any physical therapy, what might a normal physical therapy routine look for that, like for that patient? Well, up until I was certified in dry needling, I would say it always looked like this treatment I'm going to tell you. So I would typically start with heat and electrical stem on the neck and the back to loosen all the muscles and decrease pain so we could get through what we needed to get through in therapy and try and make some immediate changes in their pain level, but also increase their, you know, range of motion or or flexibility in the muscle so that we could get some movement back in their spine. So after the heat and stem, I would probably do a few stretches very little on the first day because you don't want them to be like, Oh my gosh, they made me worse. So we just do a few stretches and some manual work, 
do some massage, some manual stretching, and then hopefully they leave feeling better than they did when they came in. And then in future visits, you can incorporate like postural strengthening and core stabilization and things like that. Once you've done the nice part and they're like, oh, she made me feel better. I'm going to go back. So do you set expectations with patients that very first visit? And so they know that they, if they have a prescription from a physician for a certain duration, is that spelled out to the patient right away? Absolutely. I will do that on the first day so that they don't think, say I do magic and they feel amazing so that they don't think that they're just healed that first visit, that they know that it's going to take six weeks to increase the strength in their shoulder blade muscles are in their core before the pain doesn't come back. So we need to correct the strength so that the pain doesn't come back. Because if they leave after the first visit and they feel amazing, the pain's going to return and then we're going to see them again for the same thing. And this goes back to that whole philosophy of teaching the patient what to do on their own so that they're still in physical therapy even after they've left the physical therapist. Yeah. And I wanted to say something about that. In our new company, because we were bought by Cora like in, in the summer, they have a lot of resources that come with being owned by such a large company. And the home exercise program is one of those things. So we, back in the day, we used to like make copies, photocopies of exercise cards. And now you can go onto this website where their home exercise program is loaded up. They can click the image and it will give a video of the exercise and it'll also say instructions, the frequency, the duration. And then they can also message me through that exercise and say, this one really hurts or I forgot how to do this one. And then I can be like, well, don't worry about it. We can look, you know, try it again when you come in next visit. So, and that program stays with them when they're discharged. So, and they can access, access that online. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. It's really cool. Do you have patients that are referred to you that are inappropriate referrals? And what I mean by that are, are there patients who aren't ready for physical therapy? Mm, I don't know. I'd say that every now and again, you'll get a patient who's like, I'm just here because my insurance needs me to get three visits of therapy before I can get an MRI. Is that a motivation issue then and not an inappropriate patient? Maybe. I don't know that I get many inappropriate patients for therapy. It will give anything a, a go for the most part. So even on the patient that is um, maybe in really severe pain, you can dial some things down to try to help them out, and you don't have to hit them with the the, the crazy exercise routine every time. Maybe just do some modalities or something simple to maybe help them with their acute pain. So modalities are ice, heat, muscle stimulation, and ultrasound. So Allison, Master Allison. Thank you. Where did you graduate (laughs) from physical therapy school? I graduated from Maryville University in 2008, like I said, with my master's. And then I started working for advanced training and rehab, and I did that for about seven years. And then I switched to elite physical therapy for, how long have I been with them? Almost five years. And then they were bought by Cora Physical Therapy in the summer. And where's Cora based? Cora's based out of, their home headquarters is in Ohio, but their first clinic was in Florida. So they've kind of like moved out of Florida into the Midwest now. So they have 200 something clinics and not one of them has ever closed. That's wild it's incredible physical therapy is a crazy business for patients that might not 
or people that might not have a lot of experience, it's a volume-driven business. Um, like everything in business, business in medicine, reimbursement keeps going down, and costs keep going up. The electric bill needs to be paid. The staff wants to be paid. And you're given restrictions for treatment by insurance companies. Yeah, more twenty and more. visits. 20 visits a year is all that a lot of insurance companies will pay. And it's all, a lot of it's structured around the diagnosis. So it's imperative that patients come in with an appropriate diagnosis to get the duration of treatment that's appropriate. So it is not uncommon that therapy clinics go under, or a common phenomenon here is that therapy clinics struggle, then get purchased by bigger and bigger groups, and that you end up with less. Lots of clinics, but less, quote, choice because one or two companies own a majority of the clinics in a space. So some of the biggest complaints I get from patients about their physical therapy experience, the biggest one and the one that um, is most likely to affect my referral to a different physical therapy center is patients who are pushed off into a corner after being told how to do something and are left alone. And so... We're really good about finding therapy locations and particularly therapists that we trust are given that short period of time that they have to deal with our patient population, which sometimes can be very difficult. Their undivided attention or at least limited um, distraction during that PT visit. So, Which I think is actually one of the challenging parts of, a, of physical therapy. I had a really good friend of mine who owned a bunch of physical therapy clinics in Oklahoma city. And he taught me a lot about that business, so to say. And, and these therapists are under a lot of pressure from the volume. There's a certain number of patients they need to see from just a simple math standpoint. Hey, it costs X amount of dollars to keep the lights on and we got to see X amount of patients to pay the bills. So what really makes a therapist stand apart sometimes is their ability to see multiple patients at one time, but make patients feel like they're the only patient in the room. And that's a, that's a special talent. Not all therapists are good at that. And to me, that is that is the key of, I, I think that's why you and I typically have a philosophy. We refer to therapists, not to clinics, because we like to look at patients in the eye and say, hey, we're going to send you to Allison. We don't necessarily, and maybe to the chagrin of the company, tell them we're going to send you to Cora or any of the other companies we we send patients all over. We send patients to Allison or to Shane or to whoever. And I think we do that because we want the Allisons of um, our referral base to call us if there's a problem. Because the other part, the other difficult situation with patients comes up when they feel like they've been injured by something they've done in the course of their treatment, whether it occurred in physical therapy or with exercises they were doing on their own. So that's where feedback and interaction with the therapists we know and the philosophies of those therapists become really important to us. I will say that the integrity of the company is really apparent. Before anything else, the patient experience is number one. And that goes all the way to if that patient needs like one-on-one -on -one care, we can provide that. We can move the schedule however we need to give the best care for that patient. Like that is 100% number one, even if it's 
it is a business and we do have to keep the lights on and the doors open. But coming straight from the top of the company is patient experience is number one, which is really cool to work for a company that has such great integrity. Do you employ a lot of physical therapy aides to help continue that one-on-one experience or help you um, manage multiple patients in an overlapping schedule? Not really. We try to see the patients ourselves. I take pride in being able to not only evaluate the patient, but follow them through their course of treatment. And we'll use assistants, like physical therapy assistants, to cover when we aren't there or something like that. And we do have aids that can help but for the most part, they're helping like get us a hot pack or clean the table. So really, it is a physical therapist that they're working with the whole time. Do you time. get your feelings hurt when a patient that you've been treating gets to see one of your colleagues and they leave you? No. I, it's awesome. It is awesome when they find the right person. For example, uh, when we talk about blood flow restriction later, one of my patients is now being treated for blood flow restriction, and I don't do that. So I'm here just to give you a little snippet about that aspect of therapy, but he has gone to one of my coworkers who specializes in that area, which I think is really cool because we all have different areas that we excel in. And every therapist has a different personality, which is the third reason my patients would might would have um, issues with their physical therapy experience. They may not have that relationship or be able to express themselves with the therapist, or they don't feel like the therapist is hearing what they say. And it's just like any relationship a patient would have with a physician. It may not be the best fit for them. Um, So good therapists may recognize that and they might push those follow-up visits with one of their colleagues where that personality may be a better fit. Absolutely. Teamwork makes the dream work. I think you've managed to get that quote in every (laughs) source session. We should have it like pegged and somebody can send us a time stamp on those there is no i in team you're motivating me more and more as the moments go on you're welcome let's talk about some of your specialties now this is the interesting part this is the up-and-coming pt information for patients who haven't been in physical therapy for years or maybe never or didn't really understand they were experiencing these treatments that are relatively new Right, and what you're going to talk about today is the it is the latest, it is the greatest, and it is the hottest thing going. Mm-hmm. And we have therapists from different places coming in here constantly talking about offering this service. So today we are going to talk about what is it, and and specifically we're talking about dry needling. And Karen, our office um, coordinator for um, workers' compensation, had a knee replacement, and her recovery was quite slow. And it wasn't until they employed dry needling in her PT post-knee replacement that she felt as good as she's felt in what she described to me as years. It's so cool. It's like magic. All right. Give us the basics, Allison. What is dry needling? So when you look at it, dry versus wet needling, wet would be what you guys do. You give injections that have a a liquid, cortisone, or whatever the anti-inflammatory agent is that you administer. Dry needling is any needle that doesn't have a liquid associated with it. 
So they're monofilament needles, which is the same as a needle you would use in acupuncture. What gauge needle do you typically use? 0.3 millimeter. What are yours? I'm curious. So we use a 27 gauge at the, that would be our smallest. So yours is even smaller. So as you go up in the number, the needle gauge goes is smaller. So yours is a 30 gauge. Ours is a 27 gauge. Um, typically I use a 22 gauge. So 22 is bigger around than a 30. I use a 25 gauge. I guess, I guess you don't care about your patients and want to use that really big needle. And I use that small needle. Well, there is science around the bigger needle if you're injecting medicine. Do tell, do tell. Well, you're trying to break up focal areas of muscle spasm if you're doing it into the muscle itself. That needle is placed into the muscle and directed into different planes, five planes, if you will. And you inject uh, medicine through that. Typically, those triggers, those focal areas of muscle spasm are larger than that needle gauge and so you're able to um, cover a a wider area and decrease that focal muscle spasm and the pain associated with it is the theory and deliver that the medication in a wider distribution that all sounds reasonable i will accept that answer but dry needling is more interesting to me so how often can you give an injection like that you're limited with the injectate if you're using corticosteroid. The injectate of corticosteroid um, causes some problems, whether it's atrophy of the muscle for given too, too frequently in the same location or reaction to the corticosteroid itself. Um, and then that larger gauge needle can also cause scarring and in the muscle itself or damage to the muscle because it is larger. So that's a cool thing about dry needling is that sometimes people are just waiting for the three-month marker whenever the doctor says to get their next injection. And the cool thing about dry needling is that you can do it once a week. So it can help to get them through to their next injection because it does a similar thing. We can put the needle into a a trigger point or one of those knots that um, you stick the needle into with medicine to cause it to relax and decrease pain. So on the on the surface dry needling sounds a lot are identical to acupuncture uh, which uses monofilament needles um, which has been around for nine million years or don't quote me on that it might be eight million. <laughs> yeah let's distinguish <laughs> acupuncture from dry needling because they are different. Yes and what's funny is even after you say this is dry needling, the patient will still say, "I got acupuncture today," <laughs> which is kind of funny. But acupuncture. So I'm not an acupuncturist, but I've received acupuncture before, and from what I can tell, they treat meridians, which, you know, for example, could be putting a needle in your ear, you know, or your, the out part, outer part of your ear to treat, you know, stress or your spleen or something like that. But with dry needling, we're putting the needle into the area that we want to affect. So we can use it, and I feel like two different ways. We can either put it into a trigger point to tell the brain to tell the trigger point to relax, causing decreased pain, or we can put it into a muscle that is not working like it should to wake it up and increase, improve function. What types of injuries do you think respond best to dry needling? Is there one some conditions that are just, oh, these are 
these are prime dry needling injuries versus others? I think the, the one that people probably think about the most is the upper trap. As we all have these knots like in our upper traps and the needle can go right into that trigger point and send the signal to the brain to tell it to relax and help to decrease those knots in the upper trap because those are a real pain in the butt to get rid of in therapy. You can improve posture, you can rub on them forever, but they keep coming back. But with this, they it dissipates and it's amazing. Um, other diagnoses that would be beneficial are just neck pain, low back pain, um, hip pain, I would think with hip pain, TMJ, plantar fasciitis. And we were actually talking about this earlier, Jeff, central sensitization. I'm excited to try and treat some central sensitization because it's all trigger point based. The idea being that maybe you can hyperstimulate something that's already stimulated and get it to kind of turn off. Reset the system, they call it. Interesting. In quotes, they use that a lot. Reset the system. I like it. Yeah. So all physical therapists are not currently doing dry needling, right? Correct. I want to say I heard it was like 5,000 or something. I, I'm sure it's growing rapidly, but it, it isn't everyone. Uh, for our, our company in Missouri, there's five of us, and there's five clinics and three soon to open. And you had to go to certification. Is that how that works? You went take a class and certification or something to that effect? Yeah. So they're kind of introducing the students in school to this, but you can't come out of school, PT school, being able to dry needle. You have to have the anatomy. You have to pass your board exam. And then after that, you can go get certified in dry needling. And it's a two-part course. At least with Kineticore, it is a two-part course. Um, level one is three days, three long days, and then level two is also three long days, and then you're certified. Have you had complications from your dry needling? No, actually, um, I think that Kineticore does a great job of training you to avoid the scary areas. They give you techniques to avoid the lung and to avoid nerves and blood vessels and things like that, so it really takes a lot of the scariness out of it. What kind of results are you getting with it? I mean, are patients throwing their cane down and dancing their way out of the clinic? Pretty much. I have been so, so surprised, really, because when you're in the class, you're treating people who really don't have much dysfunction. But then when you bring it out into the world where people have these trigger points and tight muscles and, and issues, I'm seeing people tell me that they've had back pain for years and years and years and they've tried everything they've even been to our clinic before and for therapy and they came back and I did dry needling on them and they're feeling so much better like right then does that last in those chronic states so we're we're able to do it once a week for the muscle but it really is just a starting point to be able to do the exercise that we need to do so it it if that trigger point has been there or that tightness has been there for so long and it limits a range of motion or something, once it's gone and their pain is gone, we really can resolve the issue that's causing the, the problem. So it's, it's pretty cool because it, it's a strong buy-in. You know, People are like, yeah. They see that there can be something that will help them so that they can progress. I think what the point you made 
was really important. That trigger point, the treatment using dry needling affects that, but there's typically something else that has caused that to happen. And that allows you to get down to the root cause, why the trigger point is, is the thing that might bring them into the clinic because they can feel it. They know that's where the pain is, but that may not be exactly what's causing the um, ultimate dysfunction. Is there, um, is there blood associated with this process? Um, sometimes, but I would say most of the time, no. Occasionally, I mean, the needle is so small that if you do, if it bleeds at all, it's like the tiniest droplet. And then we just educate the patient that there might be a bruise there, some soreness afterwards, maybe for 24 hours. Um, the bruise might last a little bit longer, but there really is not much blood because the needle's so tiny. So patients on blood thinners? If it's uncontrolled, I wouldn't do it. If it's controlled, I would still consider it. And I think with the size of those needles, you're safe to approach it that way. Mm -hmm. So I would say there has to be a few reasons patients couldn't um, have that type of treatment. Uncontrolled bleeding disorders, infections, I would think. If you have a systemic infection. Um, I mean, you wouldn't want to do it over any areas of like pacemaker or anything like that. Any risk of pneumothorax when you're up in the trap area? So we do have to disclose that there is risk of pneumothorax, which... Pneumothorax is... Um, collapsed one, lung. That's right. So fun fact, kids. Jeff's going to be... He's going to share a personal story. No, no, an anatomy story because I don't think patients really understand this, but... Um, your lungs are actually not very deep um, up in the trapezius area. And patient, patients, and I mean, a lot of people don't understand that. We think of our lungs being buried in the middle of our chest, but the upper lobe of your lung is actually fairly shallow by your collarbone area and trapezius region, roughly. And uh, so shots in that area, while a lot of people think, oh, it's just simple, there's actually a little something that you got to think about. I can't tell you how many times I've had patients who've been um, to physicians and had trigger point injections in that area with collapsed lungs. Yeah, that's not, not uncommon. So because of that risk, they we are trained to do it in supine, laying on your back, and we grab the muscle and pull it away from the clavicle, away from the ribs, and then we use the needle toward our own hand. So it's going in the opposite direction towards their head as opposed to their feet. So there's no risk of pneumothorax if it's done correctly and you have a solid knowledge of anatomy. Now, most of the time with the types of needles, even for trigger points, the larger needles, they're small enough that if there's a small nick in the lung, it won't. Um, it'll re reinflate, if you will on its own without requiring much treatment, but it can happen and it is a risk. How about really heavy patients? Personally, if I can't palpate the area that I want and I can't palpate my bony landmarks, if I can't feel where I'm going, then I won't do it. So that's a requirement. So obviously the needle would be bigger for people who have more tissue, um, but if I can't palpate where I'm going, then I'm not going to do it. I'd rather be safe than use it. We have plenty of other tools, you know, in our PT toolbox. Does it hurt after you get it? Or I mean, obviously, it's it, the point is to relieve the pain. But do the needle marks ever? Or do they ever stay sore? Or do they ever hurt? Not usually. So I just educate the patient that it might feel like a dull ache as it's going into the muscle, 
But if it's sharp or shooting, then that's not the area I want to be in. So I need to redirect the needle. So I just use them as a uh, guide and they can kind of guide me to whether I'm going in the right spot or not. And they might be a little bit sore for maybe 24 hours. They might have a little bruise if it bleeds a little. But for the most part, most of the time people can't even tell the needles in them. <laughs> so I don't think it's painful. And then afterwards they feel like a million bucks. So, so that, that reminds me of one other question. I think with acupuncture, and we're, we're efforting to get an acupuncturist in here because we really have a lot of questions about acupuncture. Um, but with acupuncture, I believe you, a lot of times you leave the needle in for a specific period of time. How does that compare to dry needling? So it depends what you want to use it for. So right now I don't have a stem unit in the stem unit in the clinic, but I will be getting one soon. So if you elicit a twitch, so if you put the needle into the muscle and you get a good twitch, then I would say you're fine to just take it out and that's what will give you the effect or the benefit is that twitch that resets the system and causes the muscle to relax. If you're using it, for example, I have a really weak hip. So if I, that's the cool thing about this is that you can test the muscle prior to doing it and show that it's weak. And then you can put the needles in it and use electrical stem to cause kind of a thumpy contraction, which will wake the muscle up. Through the needle, through the needle itself. Yeah. So you'll attach electrical stem like an alligator clip to the needle and it'll cause that thumpy contraction. And you can leave that for a few seconds or 10 minutes and then take it off and retest. And that muscle is like awake and significantly stronger. So it just kind of depends what you want to do with the treatment. In some areas, if you're holding the tissue and you needle it, you don't want to let go for risks of, you know, the needle getting close to arteries, veins, nerves, Long. We're going in to do our abs. <laughs> nice. <laughs> My ab is fine. My ab. <laughs> Occasionally, you're going to have patients that they don't care how small the needle is. They're not doing dry needling. Ne needle phobias are real. We see them every day. And, and I don't think anything of it when a patient has a needle phobia. Like, there's no judgment that comes through my head. And you'd like to think all medical providers do that. But it's so common in our world that I'm just like, okay, you don't want a shot. No big deal. We just do something different. Well, because most of what we do, you know, in two years, may, that injection is not going to change that outcome. Typically, it is there to help them through their acute or subacute pain or to help with functional changes at that time. And two years down the line, whether they got that injection or not, probably is not making a huge difference. Unless it means they ended up with surgery because they couldn't tolerate their symptoms. Yeah, I think that we we encounter a lot of patients that uh, talk about needle, that'll ease into the discussion of needle phobias. And some of them are real um, sensitive to it. But I just encourage patients. I'm like, hey, look, if you don't like needles, just tell me. It's not that big of a deal. There other ways to treat musculoskeletal conditions. And I imagine the same thing goes for therapists. So let's say dry needling isn't an option for that patient for whatever reason. You've got another trick up your sleeve in another somewhat famous therapy that uh, was made famous a few years ago by the, U uh, by the Olympics. 
when Michael Phelps made it famous. I've done this treatment. I have pictures to prove it. Major hickeys. <laughs> We're talking about cupping. So explain cupping to to our listeners, Allison. How would you explain it? It is the only treatment that isn't compressive, which I think is interesting because a lot of the things that we do are pushing down on people and then the needles, the massage, you know, a lot of things are, are compressive. So I guess the cup pulls the pressure away to give space between the fascial layers. And then another treatment that we're going to talk about, ASTEM, kind of uh, smooths things out after the cupping. So they kind of work together. Yeah, cupping's had a, a, a strange renaissance since the last Olympics when Michael Phelps was seen um, with these giant circle, bright red circles all over his back. I believe it was Phelps. And it's funny because... I learned about cupping. I did my training at the University of Washington in Seattle. And so cupping was done there, but it was more the traditional cupping where they used to take the glass and heat it and then put it on the back and the suction would... That's what I had. I had traditional cupping. It's basically a hickey. It is suction like a hickey with... It's almost... It, it was almost a massage technique. You know, I felt good for a couple of hours and I was left with those large circular hickeys all over my... You've said hickey a lot. I'm not familiar. What is a hickey? I will certainly show you pictures of my hickeys on my back. The only time I've had a hickey is from a young... This is very awkward. Young (laughs) therapist. Not making it any better. Keep going. No, but it did feel better, and I was encouraged to come back, and as any good, bad patient will attest, there was no going back. and those lasted for a long time with not enough relief for me to... When when we learned about cupping in PA school, it was because um, we actually learned about it in pediatrics because every year there's a few children who have cupping, traditional cupping techniques done, and their parents get turned into DHS. That's interesting. Yeah, I could see that. Because they are, it is a small bruise. And these scars that are really in these very systemic patterns, and they just look really abnormal... And so we learned about it in that regard. So cupping, I think, can help. Um, it does. The theory behind it is increasing blood flow, decreasing muscle tension, and um, restoring kind of movement in some affected areas. Um, and you mentioned that cupping's used with a treatment called ASTEM, and that's another one that we're big. Dr. Herford and I are big fans. I'm a huge fan of ASTEM if patients can tolerate it. Explain to the listeners what ASTEM is. So ASTEM is a treatment that uses three plastic tools, three different tools to glide over the skin to address tissue adhesions, kind of like the same thing we talked about with dry needling. It's just not invasive. So it glides over these knots in the muscle and increases collagen production and blood flow to improve healing. I find your use of the word glide interesting. I'm not sure that every patient that's had ASTEM would describe it as gliding. So glidey. <laughs> yeah, it's like a rolling pen. Is but the dirty secret about ASTEM is it's it's it can be uncomfortable. It can be uncomfortable. It can be for sure. I think early on, particularly when their tissue is most injured, it is painful. Mm-hmm. And then as those adhesions decrease and collagen comes and. Pr- provides new tissue, restores the, t- the tissue, and regenerates the tissue, 
it's less painful as you go. Right. And where do you get your best results with ASTEM treatment? So I find things like IT band syndrome it's really helpful for because that is an area that is kind of a pain to treat in the physical therapy world. It, it takes a long time to resolve the symptoms of ITBN syndrome. So ITBN syndrome is a really good use of ASTEM because it's really hard to treat. It, it's a, a ton of fascia. It can be very tight. And honestly, massaging it with your hands is just exhausting and it just doesn't do much. So if you can use these tools to break down some of that tightness and that scar tissue, people really improve. How many treatments of ASTEM typically is required in most tendon injuries or muscular injuries? So I would say they feel some immediate effect, but before they really feel some improvement is maybe three to four sessions. And then they kind of teach us to cap it around eight to 10 sessions. And then once they've received eight to 10, it's kind of maybe like their max medical improvement for that treatment. And then at that point, they can just continue with exercise program of increasing strength and flexibility after improving the tissue quality. But I will say it can get addicting. So I have some runners who feel like it's taken or it has taken minutes off their mile, so they'll come in cash pay just to get both their legs done before a race. So that is a population that loves ASTEM. That runner population and probably needs it with the tightness that we subject our bodies to. ASTEM's been—I'll use the word game changer in the last few years. It's been a—it's a, made big improvements. Like even post-operative people with. Um, Stiffness post-operatively make good re- good results with that. Scar tissue anywhere, I think, is a good, um, at least a trial of ASTEM. And STEM, just for our listeners, is not stimulation from an electrical device. It is uh, stimulation of the muscle recovery, I think, is, if I recall, I think that's where um, this, the name came from. The name is kind of funny. So it's A-S-T-Y-M, but it's stands for augmented soft tissue mobilization. And the Y stands for nothing. The Y, so they can market it. I want to say during the course, they said that ASTM was taken. (laughs) So they added a Y for sound. You know, you um, educated me on on this treatment. I'm really interested in blood flow restriction. Um, I know this isn't something that you do, but there's people within the core system that do it. But the 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 concept and the thought process behind blood flow restrictions are actually really interesting for, for extremity injuries. I'm, I'm real interested in it. So blood flow restriction is another one of those hot topics that has been new in the therapy world, or I, I feel like it's new, but doctors are starting to ask us to do it. And I personally, like you said, I don't do it and I might at some point, but right now I'm busy opening a clinic. So I am not certified in blood flow restriction, but it's interesting because you can do more with less is what they say. So you can put this blood flow or like um, like a blood flat pressure cuff onto the, the leg, for example, and pump it up to a certain percentage and then do the same weight or even less weight with an exercise and get more strength benefit out of it. So for example, this was recommended for a patient of mine who 
couldn't do more than a 90 pounds on the leg press with one leg. And we try to get people to do their body weight uh, because that's how much you need to be able to do the stairs. And if they can't increase more than 90 pounds without pain, then they're kind of stuck. Or they have to lose weight. Right. And become a 90-pound person. <laughs> that seems reasonable. <laughs> it's practical. So uh, one of my coworkers started doing it on a patient of mine, and he's able to increase his strength while not increasing the weight or the resistance. So share us, share with us again that setup. So, so there's a blood pressure cuff. And it is applied to the extremity. And then I believe that there's a check somehow to see like how much pressure is applied. And then they do the same motion just with the cuff on. So they would do a squat or a leg press or... So it's a compression device. Yeah, it just limits the blood flow to the area. But it's interesting because, again, that running population has um, recently made the compression stockings during races much more commonly seen um, or after a race for recovery and probably utilizes some of the same physiologic parameters for recovery that the blood flow restriction devices do. And obviously patients who have vascular problems who already are limited in blood flow would not be candidates for that type of treatment. The theory behind it centers around the the, um, the one rep max type philosophy, right? Like the maximum amount of weight that you can lift one time. And the, the theory is that in order to get stronger, you have to consistently lift 60 to 70% of your one rep max. Well, what they found and what they believe is that by cutting the blood flow off to these muscles that you are able to kind of physiologically trick the body into thinking they're in that one rep, they're into that 60-70% one rep max range, but you're able, you're able to do it with much smaller weight. So you get the growth or the technical term hypertrophy effects, growth of the muscle effects, which with much smaller weight, because it's basically in a hypoxic state. There's no oxygen to these muscles. So that's that's the physiology behind it, which is super interesting because while we think about some of this stuff with athletes and like runners, but really for like geriatric patients, this could be a game changer because a geriatric patient may have underlying um, you know, bony issues like osteoporosis or other conditions. Or just deconditioning. And they can't. They cannot get stronger. And their balance is off and they're, they fatigue easily. Yeah, so it's super interesting where that's headed. I think that the, the thought behind it is, is I mean, I always, I'm always amazed when they come up with these things. It's so simple and yet so brilliant. You know what we need to talk about, Miss Allison? We need to talk about your new clinic because oh, that yeah. is exciting. It is exciting, yes. Um, so the February 24th, it's supposed to open. And it's at Manchester and McKnight. And it's by the Lucky's Market that I think is now closed. The latest, one of the latest and greatest clinics in town, right? Yeah. So I'm excited because the prototype or whatever that they're using for our new clinics is like the fanciest thing you've ever seen. So can patients walk in and check it out? 
Absolutely. They can come in and check it out. So it will be done probably the, I'm getting equipment delivered on the 18th. So it's a short amount of time before we open and then they can come by and check it out and we'll have an open house in March where anybody can come. And And you're in charge there. Yeah. So I'm going to be managing the clinic and I'll be the only therapist for a while until I get the business up and going. And then I have plans to hire another therapist between May and July and then it'll be a two-person clinic for a while. So that is really exciting. Yeah. No pressure. No pressure at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if people are interested in dry needling and uh, think that it, it may be an option for them, they want to uh, experience A-STEM. Um, those are things that you do and will be available at the new clinic. Um, and if you can't do it, that's okay. There's other therapists that do some of these other things at Cora Physical Therapy as well. So cupping is available from other physical therapists, blood flow restriction therapy. So if those are things that people are interested in, how can they get in touch with you guys? They can call. So I'm, I'm treating at the Baldwin Clinic right now. So the number there is 636-220-6969. And we'd be happy to direct any questions or particular diagnoses to any other clinic. And if your patients talk to your physicians and tell them you're interested in, in those techniques and and um, have them direct direct you to the right location. Yeah, that's one quick question on that. Do you have to have specific, do the orders specifically have to say dry needling or is that? No, so actually this is something I wanted to ask you guys about too. So it's within our scope of practice to add it to any patient that we feel like is appropriate. But out of courtesy, I've asked most of the doctors that I've done it on because it is more invasive, especially if they're like a post-operative patient. I've asked the surgeon, would it be okay with you if I do this treatment? If so, how long would you like me to wait? It's recommended to wait, you know, six or 12 weeks, whatever. So how do you guys feel about this? Would you want to be asked prior to your patient being needled? I think that physicians probably... Um, fall into two categories. Those physicians who really don't understand what happens in physical therapy and they just refer their patients there. So they would be all too happy to uh, let you do that. The other group of physicians um, direct care a little bit more. And I think if there's ever a question, a courtesy phone call, some physicians, if they're really particular, don't like a lot of modalities. And if they write no modalities, then obviously that is a physician. If you really think it's going to change their care, I would definitely call. Beyond that, you're probably safe. But so the one category where absolutely no modalities and there are still physicians who um, believe that, or at least somewhere in the continuum of their treatment, they want modalities removed. Um, then, then it might not be proper, even though it, it could be beneficial, but just, just checking and in that category, I would think. Miss Allison McCarthy, Masters of Physical Therapy from Cora Physical Therapy. Or Master Allison, as she prefers to be called, apparently. Yes, thank you. Master Allison is, is much better. I stand corrected. <laughs> With Core Physical Therapy and opening soon. The We're going to call it the Brentwood Clinic. At Manchester and McKnight. People have questions that can reach out um, to you or Core Physical Therapy and get in touch with you. Or just stop in sometime after February 24th. Absolutely. Well, Allison, we appreciate you joining us. But before you leave, there's one 
last thing that we must do. All our guests go through a gauntlet that we like to call getting hammered. So getting hammered, five questions. You have not seen them. The trick is to answer them honestly. So are you ready, Allison, to get hammered? (laughs) Bring it on. Question number one. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Flying. Fantastic answer. (laughs) You are lame. Clarify who. You're on a podcast. People don't know. You, Jeff. Who you just (laughs) Let's be clear. I wasn't speaking of Master Allison. I was talking about you. It's not my (laughs) fault that every time we do this, everyone gives a better answer than you. Well, I think my answer was fantastic. What was your answer? I said I would want to speak and understand every language. Ooh, that's really good. Can I change my answer? (laughs) Good Lord. (laughs) Flying is is what you'd ask for. Flying or, I mean, that's a great answer. You have the capacity to learn every language and understand it. You could do that given Mm -hmm. the amount of time. Uh, I'm mentally impaired to learn and understand every language. I killed off enough brain cells in my youth that (laughs) I can't. Question number two. If you could be from any other decade, what would it be? Hmm. That's a tough one. I'd probably say the 60s. The music was good. Ooh. We have a hippie in our midst. (laughs) Do you like psychedelic? (laughs) A conversation for another session. Question number three. What do you think about when you're alone in your car? Hmm. We are not asking you that question, Jeff Todd. Probably what I'm going to make for dinner that day. (laughs) As I'm driving to work. Strangely, exactly what I think about. Dinner. (laughs) Even even on the way to work in the morning. Yeah, because I can have groceries delivered to the house and have it all there. So when I get home, I can start making whatever it was I was thinking about on my way to work. Instacart. Yes. Instacart. Is the real deal. I have not gotten on the Instacart. Oh, it's so good. It is phenomenal. Or if my husband gets home first, he can start making the thing I was thinking about on my way to work. There you go. Groceries are there. Question number four. What is one food you wouldn't want to give up? Pho. Excuse me? Yep. Vietnamese soup. It is my absolute favorite food. Okay. If you don't make fun of this one, Jeff. (laughs) you. (laughs) Have you had it? Oh my gosh. It's the best. It's the most comforting food on the planet. It's a good... I've never had that. It's fantastic. I've had it. So where do you get good pho? Any Vietnamese restaurant, but I go to My Lee, or there was one on Manchester, but it's closed now, which doesn't look great, or Pho Long, or uh, Pho Grand. All right. I went to Vietnam, and when we arrived at midnight they had a huge pot of bone broth that had been simmering for who knows how long and they prepared us this amazing meal and i haven't gone back since question number five if you could live anywhere in the world where would you live and why oh man that's a tough one hmm anywhere in the world so, first of all, I've been to 13 countries, so I've seen a lot of these places, but I always enjoy coming home, which is 
probably a super lame answer because my family is here. So I really like being here, but I love being able to go and see all these places, but come back and still have my family. So are you saying Festus? Yep. Festus. No. Kirkwood. (laughs) No one has, no one has said Festus yet. I gave the same answer. The United States would be the best place to live. You can visit everywhere, but come home. Oh, absolutely. I will go anywhere. Well, almost anywhere. Not China. Not right now. Well, Miss Allison McCarthy from Cora Physical Therapy, Master Allison Thank McCarthy. Thank you so much. What an uh, informational session. A lot of fun. You have a great personality. I hope people just drop in and surprise you in the middle of all your patients, in the middle of clinic, and then the day that you thought was going to be seven hours long is now 12. I don't mind. I love the company. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been Sore Sessions with Dr. Trish and Jeff.